Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Now this week's episode continues the story of coffin ships. In the last show, we heard from Dr. Kean T. McMahon, a historian in the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Keane's an expert in the area, having written the book The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea in the Great Irish Famine. Now while last week's show covered the why and how people left, this week's episode continues the conversation with Keane, looking at why emigrant vessels were called coffin ships and how many died trying to escape the Great Hunger in Ireland in the 1840s. We also talk about what it was like for survivors who found themselves in a strange land and how emigration and enforced exile helped to forge modern Irish identity. Keane's book, The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea, in the Great Irish Famine, is available at the link in the show notes below. As I said last week, I found it a very different famine history. It's deeply personal and you get a real sense of what life was like at the time. Before we begin, don't forget my exclusive supporter series on the Irish Civil War starts over on Patreon this week. The first episode drops on Thursday, that's January the 26th, and in that episode, myself and Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College Dublin will be talking about the causes of the Irish Civil War and how Irish people reacted to the outbreak of the conflict. The answers to these questions is often simply summarised in two words, the Treaty, referring to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which brought an end to the War of Independence. That's part of the story, but as you'll hear in the first episode in this exclusive series, the real picture is a bit more complex than often portrayed. Now that series will be exclusively available to show supporters on Patreon and Acast Plus in the show notes below. Now to this week's episode. The term coffin ship implies death, but I wanted to get a sense of what the actual numbers who perished while trying to escape the great hunger in Ireland were. When he was researching his book, Keane didn't accept the perceived wisdom 
about these figures, but instead he went back to the original sources to try and find the most accurate information. His answer here is fascinating. Now he begins by contextualising transatlantic travel in the 19th century and explains how people died on pretty much all transatlantic voyages. So the standard answer is 20% mortality on ships during the famine. And then 20%, where do we get that number? 20%? Ah, sure, look, 20%, like that's that's what it was. But that's not good enough. So I took a step back. I still I stepped back from 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 Ireland and the Irish, and I read as much as I could about give me shipboard mortality for people in general, Europeans in general, and then emigrants in general in the 19th century. So so this isn't me crunching numbers on Germans, right? Uh, this is me reading the work of other historians, folks like uh, Raymond Cohen, Robin Haynes, who've, who've crunched numbers. And what we learn is that generally speaking, if you are a European getting on a sailing ship in the 19th century, your mortality rate on a ship like that is going to be somewhere between one and two and a half percent. So if there's 100 people on the ship, one or two are probably going to die. It's not a big deal if none of them dies. It's not surprising if three or four die. It's probably going to be one or two people are going to die. So I read enough of the of the secondary literature to understand. Okay, so, so that's my baseline. Now let's see what, what was happening with the Irish. And what happened was that the statistic, the best statistics that I could find, I didn't do every single statistic for every single year. I tracked down the best statistics that I could find. And the best ones that I could find were for those going to Canada. And ironically, 1847 is one of the best documented years for statistics. I also got lots of great statistics, published statistics for Australia, right? Because I wanted Australia to be part of the story. Because you have to remember, when, when people are in a hurry to leave Ireland, they didn't say, well, I'm an Irish American, I'm an Irish Canadian, I'm an Irish Australian. They looked in the post and went, oh, great, got a ticket to go to, what? You know, they, they, they went to where they, could, where, where they could go. So I didn't want to put them into boxes before they left. So I looked at the statistics and I pulled them all out and I crunched them. And what I found was that for ships leaving from Ireland and Liverpool, going to Quebec and New Brunswick, which are basically the two main ports for Canada, in 1847, the death rate of all of the, it's about 100,000 people, about 10,000 die, both on the ship and in quarantine afterwards. So you're looking at somewhere in the ballpark of about 10%. Now, other historians have pointed out, and they're right, well, what about people who died inland? What about people who got sick on the ship, carried the sickness into Canada past quarantine, or never stopped in quarantine, and died on the streets of Montreal or Toronto? To which I reply, well, it's really hard to count those numbers. Like, I mean, we can we can estimate those numbers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to limit my... my I'm, I'm going to give you a really good answer about a limited. And I'm going to acknowledge that there's, a, that there's a fuzzy ring around this that neither I nor probably most others would be able to. But I'll, I, my estimates can cover the vast majority of people those who died on the on the ocean or 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 in quarantine 
And so I'm I'm confident that ten that ten percent as a whole for the Irish cohort in 1847. So it's about half of what of what has generally been accepted. While one in ten did not survive the voyage in 1847, Keane's research revealed this varied dramatically depending on the port of departure and the individual ship on which people travelled. It's not ten percent on every ship. There's some ships that have really bad rates of of death, and the names are famous, the Virginius, the Avon, the B. These are some of the most famous ships in which large numbers of people died. But like tons and tons of ships went across in 1847 from Ireland to Quebec with no mortality or low mortality. The other thing to point out is that it's not 10% from every port. It's not true that 10% of the people who left Dublin died and 10% of the people who left Limerick died or Cork or Liverpool. That's not true. In fact, when you look at Liverpool, it's one of the highest death rates. It's at about 18%. The Cork is similar. Cork's almost 19, almost 19% of the people who sailed from Cork to Quebec died. Almost about 18% of those who left Limerick. So, So there's something about the Big populations in small areas being crammed together, right? And in, in the 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 I think the term I use is the microbial regimes. I didn't coin that phrase. The microbial regimes of the ports that they're leaving are important. But Belfast, I don't have the stats in front of me, but like Dublin, Belfast, similar, they're they're also big ports. They don't have the same mortality rates. I mean, it's only hundreds of people leaving, but I think Westport Mayo didn't have one person die in 1847 going to Quebec. Uh, again, the, the sample is smaller. But 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 I think that's that when you start to slice it and look more carefully at it, you realize it's more complicated. If someone dies on the ship, let's say you're on a ship with 200 people, you're expecting two to four people to die. And in fact, three people die. It's probably a really old person or a baby or somebody who was already, you know, sick when they got on or somebody who fell or like the statistics don't, it's not like t- if you get on the ship, you have a 2% chance of dying. If you're a healthy 25 year old man or woman, because the, because the death rates don't split by gender, generally speaking, that's Raymond Cohen's. He's done a much larger sample. And his argument is that if you look at tens of thousands of people, it's not that more women died or more men died, uh, but age is the most important contributing factor. So I write this whole chapter called Death Nut, chapter four on that subject to get those statistics. But I'll just finish by saying that that the statistics is only the first third of that chapter, because I'm also really interested in the ways in which death and dying serve to impact the communities on the ships. So people came together, for example, to provide a wake of sorts for loved ones or neighbors. They took the time to have a solemn funeral. You know, I mean, when you're buried at sea, you're sewn up in a canvas shroud. You have weight tied to your feet, and your prayers are said, and you're 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 thrown in the ocean. But there's a lot of social uh, solidarity and community going on around that. Kean went on to talk about how news of deaths or survival was transmitted back to Ireland and how people reacted at home. And then finally, the third section of the chapter looks at how death is 
a part of the life of those still on land. So like if somebody emigrates and they don't write to after a year, it's entirely reasonable they just died, you know? So death is on the minds of people. And I, I know this because like, I was kind of surprised at how many letters people mentioned, geez, we hadn't heard from you in ages, just figured you were dead, you know? And so, so then it's, well, who did die? Oh, well, you know, so-and-so got married. So-and-so's daughter died. But so-and-so actually was very sick and they lived. So-and-so had a baby. And so they're sending back news about life and death to their old neighbors. And in that, like soon after arriving, and in that way, these transnational stitches of community. So you used to live down the road from this person. Now they're living in eastern Pennsylvania. But like they're still, they're sending you newspapers. They're, telling, they're giving you updates on who died and who's sick and who's living. And in that way, migration helps people recover from their famine by rebuilding these, these, these stitches uh, of community and so Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Solidarity. The vast majority of Irish people did survive and found themselves in a very strange land. Many had grown up in rural Ireland and landed in Manhattan. Kean now explains what their first few days was like, how they adapted and how they helped each other adapt. For the final chapter of the book called Arrival, I didn't want to attempt these longitudinal studies that were popular in, in, in earlier decades in which historians would try and track a family for, for 40 years, you know. It's really important and, and fascinating work. It, it's just my, not my thing. I was interested in the first two, three, four, five, six days. You know, I was interested in, in, in the experiences that, like literally, okay, now tell me, like you just got here, now what? Like, and so I found that all of these important ways in which, again, People are coming together. So, for example, you have to go through a medical inspection. What's going to happen? Well, a, me a medical inspector is going to show up and he's going to look around and he's going to give his impression of what shape you're in. And depending on what he thinks of you, you might have to spend more time in quarantine, less time in quarantine. So you best like clean up a bit. And so there's like I have evidence of of passengers literally like ganging up together to scrub down the ship you know throwing out old mattresses was a popular one you know they they'd see land they get close and they'd start throwing things overboard they would if they if they have nice clothes 
the captain might give them access to the hold and you have people putting on the Sunday dress, um, literally in, in preparation uh, for landing. Then getting up, where are we going to stay? Like, are we going to, you communicate with people. You might have a family member who said, listen, I'm going to be there at the dock or I, it's going to take me two days to get there. You have to go to a place called such and such and stay at so-and-so's lodging house. Tell them that you know me and you'll be okay. They have to do things like hire drays. So uh, for, you know, people were horse and cart, basically. Where are you going? I'll, I'll carry your stuff for you. A dray costs a lot if you're one person <laughs> with a box that's just a little too heavy for you to haul through the streets of Manhattan. But uh, if you uh, gang up with other passengers and you say, uh, well, why don't we split the dray? Well, then there's five or six of you sharing a dray and it's affordable. Looking for work. I know so-and-so, uh, I'm a cobbler, you're a cobbler, let's go, you know. I. So a lot of work, as uh, American historians have, have shown, in the 19th century is, is word of mouth. It, it, you're, not, you're not getting on, <laughs> on monster.com or whatever. They're, they're using word of mouth. So, so those kinds of ways in which people are, are, are stitching together. They're also saying goodbye to each other. Yeah, I have letters of people saying, I, I got there, I looked around like, oh, I I had like a kind of a community going on the ship there. You know, I spent the last month with their month or two with these people. Like we're um so there's a there's a sense of a kind of a loneliness or or a trepidation uh, that follows. So yeah, so the idea of people as like these huddled sitting in huddled rags, like totally destitute, is is not the whole picture. It's part of the picture, it's not the whole picture. It's also in the interests of the authorities in places like Canada, the UK, and Australia, and the United States to help you get shifted. Like, what do you need? The A.C. Buchanan, who was actually born in Ireland, was a chief emigration agent in Quebec. He would write detailed reports back to London, you know, once a year. Uh, this is how much I spent. This is how much. I... And part of his expenditure was someone would land and say, yeah, we have family in Toronto, but we have no money. Uh, okay, here, I'll pay your fare. He was paying the fares of people going to places like Missouri, like not just not just down to Toronto or Montreal, like people going to Chicago, people going to New York. In Australia, it's it's much different. It's much better organized. They have lodging houses. They have employment rooms, I think they were called. Anyway, so you would basically get get yourself landed, get dressed, go downstairs and employers would show up like, oh, there's a new boatload of people. Oh, great. I need one of you, one of you, one of you. And people would would find work much more easily. During our discussion, Keane brought up Irish and Irish-American identity and how the experiences of these journeys helped to forge modern Irish identities in Ireland and the US. I don't think I read one letter from a tenant farmer or laborer who described him or herself as Irish. Like these people aren't thinking of themselves as Irish. They're Brennans. They might be from Castlecomer. They might be from Kilkenny, but they're not. They're not thinking. Of the, they don't get in the ship and go. Ah, oh, this is Grant. There's a bunch of Irish people here. Where's Donny O'Sullivan? You know, and they're, they're not. They're not. They're not thinking of it in those terms. What brings? They don't have family. They don't have the history. They don't have the sharing of experience of land, whether that's you know common pasturage or turf or they don't have those experiences. What they do have is a shared experience. They know what it means to be cold. 
They know what it means to be wet. When a woman goes into labor, other women know what it means to have help. And so they know what it means to be threatened by, I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, but frankly, a Protestant with uh, a cudgel and an English accent. Like they know that they're not that. And so solidarities start to develop on the ship out of the real everyday lived experience. And I think, I think that that is part of what feeds into their experiences on the other side of the ocean. You know, sometimes people say like Irish people, well, in the 19th century, the sense of being Irish developed first amongst people on the other side of the ocean when they got over there and they, they realized they were so far from home uh, that they could connect with some, suddenly Cork and Kerry are getting along. You know, although we don't overstate that because, you know, as you know, the canal diggers and those folks were, were, were some of those rivalries were maintained. But yeah, there's a lot of that important solidarities that are developing on the ship. And it's and it's an important part of the story that I that I tried to tell. Before we finished, I changed tack a little. I was eager to hear Keen's insights into how perceptions of the Great Famine vary between Ireland and Irish America. It is the most important event in our history, after all. Now, as an Irish emigrant in the US, Keen has insights to opinions on both sides of the Atlantic. Remembering the famine is a big and huge complicated subject, and I must admit that it's not something that I have that I've written and published about, but it's a very important, very important subject. You know, my thought on it is it's it's kind of a complicated issue in, in Ireland and Irish America. In Kirby Miller's book in that he published in 1985, Emigrants and Exiles, he makes a really interesting argument, which is that many of those Irish, particularly Catholics, who went to North America during and, af- and soon after the famine described emigration as a form of exile, that they'd been forced out by you know, Protestant landlords, British misgovernment, that they'd been forced out of of Ireland. And that therefore, everything would have been fine if they hadn't been misgoverned and maltreated. It was a form of exile. In a second dimension to his argument, which often gets less play, he points out that those who remained in Ireland, comfortable, what I call strong farmers, actually told this story too, that they described the emigration of their friends and neighbors as exile, partly to buttress nationalist claims for political independence from Britain, obviously, but also as a way of clouding the class tensions that were there between the ones who survived and did quite well out of the famine, you might say, and those who emigrated or died. Because before the famine, the number of small farms, they're barely sustaining families, is quite large. After the famine, Ireland develops into what for a long time was the Irish family farm, which is a lot more emphasis on grazing, cattle and sheep, a lot bigger farms, more comfortable, capable of raising families and not only raising families, but also doing quite well in, in the community. And so to, to cover up for or to, to mask the class tension that's in there, 
those who survived the famine described it uh, as as exile. Now, I have to say that since 1995, the sesquicentennial of the famine, and when the when the Irish government and Irish public discourse really started to engage with and embrace the famine as a subject, since since then it's become a lot more complicated. And I think in some ways, because emigration has remained such a part of Irish experience, Irish people find their own ways of, of talking about it and engaging with it. I think you're right that there is a reticence to dig too deeply into it. But I would say that that the Irish kind of narrative surrounding the famine has, has gotten more complicated since the 1990s. I don't know if this is true, but this is my sense, is that in Irish America, the narratives surrounding the famine have not embraced that kind of sesquicentennial turning point in the same way. Now, lots of Irish Americans stay up with the latest in historical research, uh, engage it, are deeply interested in it, and actually, like me, find that it's the complexity of the subject uh, that that that's most interesting. But there's certainly an enduring strain of discourse in Irish America that describes the famine in very clear-cut, simplistic terms. I can understand that perspective. I, I can see how that perspective was developed, was fostered, and has continued to grow. And, and that's important. We, we, that, that needs to be maintained. We need to commemorate the suffering uh, of those who died and emigrated against their will. But we can do so in a way that actually celebrates their creativity and humanity rather than reduces them to prone bodies at the bottom of a coffin ship. If you want to get Keane's book, The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea in the Great Irish Famine, it's available at the link in the show notes below. It's one you'll return to time and again. I'd like to thank Keane for his time in making this episode. Now don't forget my exclusive series on the Irish Civil War starts over on Acast Plus and Patreon this Thursday. You can get that in the link below. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Until next time, Sloan.